Welcome to the UK Educators Community Podcast hosted by Sid, an outstanding woman in STEM award winner, serial entrepreneur and educational consultant. Now, my vision is to make maximum impact in the world through education, but I know I can't do this alone. So this is where you guys come in. Why don't you join me on this journey as we as educators and entrepreneurs create impact one child at a time? Join my Facebook group at UK Educators or find some great resources on my website at ukeducators.com. So today I've got Richard Gray, who will be talking about his life as a solar entrepreneur. So many of you opt not to grow your businesses in terms of employing people or getting more people on board. Um, You want it to be uh, nice and controlled and um, you want to be able to function on your own. And we're going to be talking about some of the issues that Richard faces in trying to grow financially, um, but want to still be a solopreneur. So we're going to be talking about that today. So welcome, Richard. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Sid. I'm very happy to be here. Tell us a bit about you and what you do and where you're at with your business at the moment. Sure, I I guess I'll uh, give you a little bit of background. So um, at the moment, I teach 11 plus, uh, so uh, specifically on the English side. Um, So it it all started because I went to a grammar school myself, so I'm familiar with the 11 plus process. Um, So people who are around like the Southwest London area might know Tiffin Boys School. So it's quite, it's got quite a good reputation in Southwest London. Um, my mum actually was my tutor, so there, the 11 plus tuition business wasn't really much of a thing back when I did it. So this is almost 20 years ago. Um, so it was like there weren't even that many books that you could buy. Um, so my mum became my tutor. She uh, did tuition and then it's always been something in the back of my mind. So when I was in sixth form, I used to teach people verbal and nonverbal reasoning. That was specifically for uh, the Tiffin 11 plus because I went there. And so people wanted um, a tutor, as in they wanted someone who'd been through that process. Um, at university, I actually did economics and the idea was to go into investment banking, which which I did. Uh, but it, the, uh, the education thing's always been at the back of my mind. So in the first year of uh, studying economics at UCL, I actually founded a voluntary pro- project. It's it was called Mathemaniac, and to this day, it's still running. So I was the original co-founder. So it was me and a girl called Jenny who co-founded it. So we rounded up a few of the people um, at UCL, and we taught maths in like a fun way to the local primary school kids. And uh, I, I just really loved it. It was such a fun experience, uh, and it really stuck with me. And uh, we, we even won an award, which was like the Voluntary Services Award from UCL. Um, so I thought, oh, I, I'm, I'm actually OK at doing this. But then um, pretty much like half of the UCL economic graduates, they all went into either banking or accounting or consulting. So that's where I ended up. So uh, I did a graduate scheme at UBS, the Swiss Investment Bank. Did a few years there and I've been to various hedge funds. Um, so pretty much until I was 26, I was just working purely in finance. And I didn't really do tuition then just because you don't have time when you're in finance that it's literally like 60, 60 hours a week on a good week and 70 hours on a, on a bad week. I decided uh, like I'd, I pretty much had enough when I was 26. Uh, and then I took like six months off to do traveling with my family. And then it was October 2018. Um, so I've been in business as a um, sole trader for two years now, uh, just just over two years. So that's when I first like launched my um, uh, classes, and it was called Crystal Tuition. And I originally did maths and English, but now I only cover the English aspects. 
so it's been quite a journey. So you went into investment banking, you did that for a while, decided um, you prefer working with kids rather than investment bankers. <laughs> and then here you are. Pretty much. I mean, um, there, there are a lot of pros and cons with both. I mean, the, the, the pros and cons with investment banking are, is uh, when you're young, you're almost guaranteed like very good money. Um, so I hit six figures uh, when I was 26, uh, which which in any industry is a massive achievement. Mm. And I don't think you can do that in many industries uh, at the age of 26. So it was always in the back of my mind um, to try and like stack up a lot of cash so that I could get property. And then I would be like essentially a free man because um, that's that's what allowed me to quit because I had a rental property still generating money um I was able to do my own thing so it didn't really matter if I because I, I I genuinely was losing money in tuition for the first three four months um so when I started out I'd actually hired two venues and one venue kindly offered to give me the money back because I, I couldn't get any people to come and then the other venue which was in Kingston uh, so it was a hotel called Brook Kingston Lodge Hotel um I offered some free trial lessons. The first trial lesson, only six people came. The next one was good because 10 people came, but only one person signed up. And so I still had to pay the rent, which is quite expensive. Um, so it's like a hundred pound for half a day. It's not too much, but the thing is when you aren't bringing in any income, a hundred pound mm. a week going out your pocket, it's it's quite a lot. And I wouldn't have been able to do that, but I was because I'm, I'm, I'm living at home and also I had uh, a rental property generating like a, a reasonable yield. You had a slightly different start to your um, business because most people, when they're trying to set up a business, they're trying to financially make it stable so then they can leave work. But you had that security because you started on a job that paid well initially so you could save up and essentially um, have that financial freedom sooner. So there's never a point where you're working part-time in investment banking and working part-time in your business you just took the plunge unfortunately you have to there's not really such thing as like uh, part-time working like there's contractors but even the, the contractors they they do like 10 12 hour days uh, they, they're like on a really good day rate but it's not like they can pick and choose the days that they want it's they're expected to work like minimum five days a week and sometimes even on the weekend so I, I never personally worked on a weekend as far as I can remember uh, but like Monday to Friday it's very brutal and you know, people say, oh, you should do like a side hustle, you should start. But genuinely, there's not really enough time. And especially if you're teaching kids, if you're coming home at like eight o'clock or nine o'clock, um, you, you don't really have an opportunity to teach kids unless it's the weekend. But that's when I wanted to obviously relax because I was shattered from working the long week. Do you find that investment banking kind of made you realize what you really wanted to do because you went and did ec ec uh, economics at uni so you were kind of already set up to go into the life of uh, uh, that kind of career do you think it made you realize what really kind of is valuable to you because you've obviously lost income from being an investment banker to now being a tutor and I guess the question that's on lots of people's minds is is it worth it is it worth losing that kind of security the financial security to do something that you truly love doing it's a very difficult one and I think it really depends on personal circumstances so for me I, I thought I'd be working in finance for a lot longer to be honest I, I thought I would uh, have like an early retirement in like when I was early 50s or late 40s because that that is feasible it's, it's very feasible um, it's just that my priority started to change. So when I, I, I grew up in a working class um, household, so skiing holidays and things like that, it just wasn't a thing. Whereas in banking, like they'll literally pay for you to, if you work for a hedge fund, they'll pay for you to go skiing. And like, um, it's, it, it's, it's a completely different life. And 
uh, I realized that's not actually important to me. So when I first graduated, I know it sounds very silly, but um, all I wanted to do was buy a car. Um, <laughs> but then I, I put it off because I said, I've got to be financially free and then I can get my car. But then I slowly started to realize the most important thing to me is financial freedom and just being a free man. It, it doesn't really matter if you're paid, you know, 20 grand, 200 grand or 2 million. If you're not a free man, um, none of that money really matters. So I'd be happy to work with kids even for minimum wage uh, just because I really love doing it. And um, like I said, I, I live at home, so I'm in a very fortunate situation. I'm 29 um, and I still live with my mum and dad. So uh, I am very, very lucky. And not I understand not everyone's going to have that because they're either going to have to pay rent or they're going to have to pay a mortgage. But for me, it's just I realised, it, it, I, th I think it was at UCL when I was volunteering. That was pure joy when, you, when you're working with kids. And it is, it's hard to describe and, until you've actually done it. And I would, I would never imagine myself as a tutor. I just couldn't, um, you know, it was always going to be my mum wanted me to be a doctor. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be prime minister for some reason. But then I read a story about um, Goldman Sachs employees getting an average of a million pound bonus and, you know, a million pound a year. That That's quite significant. That's that's kind of life changing money. So I thought, you know what, this this has to be the right way to do it. Um, but then once you're in that industry, you realize there are there are other more important things than just money. Once once you've got a certain amount, um, it's, it's not really about the money anymore. It's about personal fulfillment. And I think when you work for yourself, regardless of whether it's running a corner shop, being a tutor, being a hairdresser, that's what being free is because you're doing what you actually want to do. Um, I know a lot of people in finance who are unhappy because they still they still got to be in the office at like half seven or eight in the morning um, and they don't go home till late. Yeah, they've got nice cars. Yeah, they live in a penthouse. They're not even nine to five um, slave. They're like an eight to eight slave. And mm. I can sense their unhappiness. Some people love it. And uh, like that, that's good for them because they're really passionate about the actual financials. So what's your definition of a free man? Because you've, you've mentioned it a few times. Is that Financial freedom is that just being able to get up one morning and decide exactly what you want to do. Like what what was it about investment banking that made you feel like you weren't free? Because some people would say having money gives them that ability to do things that they wouldn't be able to do. But you don't agree with that for you being able to run your own business. So what is your definition of being a free man? The free time is actually more important than money. Uh, I think when you're starting out, money's more important than time. So especially when you're in your early 20s, I, I would say, like, obviously do a job that you love. But the thing is, the jobs that you love tend to not pay that well. So if you can get into a lucrative career, so, for example, working for Facebook, Google, uh, working as an engineer, working in banking, in law, you're, you're going to be able to stack money quite quick if you're consistent and you get your promotions. And that's going to buy you freedom uh, in future. You can't just be a free man immediately. There has to be a lot of sacrifice. And I, I do think people who can like delay their gratification and uh, sort of suffer for the first 10 years or so, they're the people who are eventually going to be free because they'll have the money and then they'll have their time. The problem is, yes, with banking, you do have the financial freedom because some of these bankers, like I personally know that they, they are on like very serious money. One of the um, partners pulled in 20 million in, in one year. Wow. Um, so financially he's free but the thing is he still has to work because he's actually tied into that contract so um one of the partners he was the ceo of a of a um it's called an ils fund so it stands for insurance linked securities 
the figure was like 60 million in shares. That was his portion of shares that was bought by uh, an investment group. But it, it was stipulated he'd have to work for the next five years. And he actually left the company six months before I left the company. So I realized if the CEO's leaving to be a free man, um, why not me as well? Because obviously he's got the financial freedom. No, I don't really have the financial freedom, but I'm still free to an extent because I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't have huge obligations. So you, you are right. And anyone who says, oh, you need money to be free. Ab- absolutely. Like you can't be free if you've, if you're worrying about paying rent, paying for food, paying for your electric bills. So I think you should take care of your finances first and then realize what's important to you. So some people might say family is important, so they should spend time with their family. Some people might say exercise is the most important, so maybe they'll spend more time in the gym. Some people might say travel is important, so they can free up time to travel. The thing is, when you're in banking, they won't let you have like three weeks off consecutively. The most I ever took was, I think it was a week and a bit. Um, And when you come back, you get swamped with work and you don't really feel like you're on holiday. And that's probably one of my biggest gripes is that you you never really switch off from from the job. That's the kind of sacrifice you take when you work in a career that pays a lot of money. They're they're essentially paying for you to live for them. um, And you don't really have the ability to do whatever you want to do. Even teachers would probably say their life is like that, but they don't get paid that amount of money for it but they're working ridiculous hours especially for the first couple of years it's crazy that some people like you were talking about the 20 million pound bonus if that was spread across a thousand people they could that would be life-changing for them but that's one person's purpose um so you're talking about money that people probably won't even be able to get their head around a lot of what you've talked about today so far it has a common thread and that's you know what your values are you know what you want from life you've kind of you know what's important to you and that has led to the decisions that you've made um so in your business now i know that you want to remain as a solo entrepreneur you don't want to have a team you don't want to kind of grow that kind of side of your business you want it to be all about um just just working on you and having that ability and that control um so what are your pain points as a solo entrepreneur Um, What do you find that you're really struggling with um, and where kind of have you hit a roadblock now? That's a really good question, Sid. So I I would say I think a lot of um, sole traders or one man bands can relate to this. Uh, A lot of admin time is, I I would say, wasted time, but necessary. So unless you've got a VA and this is what I was speaking to you about, um, you know, on Facebook about not knowing really how to delegate the the reason why is because i'm i grew up as a corporate man so coming from uni i was put in a corporate background where everyone does like specific jobs you're not really expected to delegate to anyone else you'll get managed by a manager and you'll you'll you become like a subject matter expert on like your specific tasks so there was no entrepreneurial uh, fl- uh flair for people in these like um office jobs because you're essentially told this is what you have to do and that's something that's been a, a bit of a roadblock because I'm just not used to it. Now, having said that, as a kid, I was a bit of an entrepreneur because I used to sell sweets. I used to sell homework um, I, and uh, you know, I used to get in trouble. You, like were, you were the kid that used to sell homework, do the homework and then sell it on to all the other students. <laughs> yeah. The teachers did love me because I was an A grade student, but they found my um behavior a little bit problematic because like I just wouldn't listen to what the teachers had to say like when there was like this whole Jamie Oliver banning um sweets and stuff from the canteen I thought 
that's great. Let me sell some chocolates. Let me sell some sweets. So it was like three for a pound in Tesco uh, for these like strawberry laces. And I used to flog them for 50p each. Now I'm making 17p per profit per pack. And that's like nothing. But as a kid, when you come home with like, say, 10 pound profit for the week, you feel kind of good about yourself. And so that was my first venture into like what being an entrepreneur is. And it's, I'd say being an entrepreneur is like, trying to make money from a, a situation where other people might not have uh, took the initiative to do that because anyone could have done it. But I actually took the initiative to go to Tesco to mm. stock up on the sweets. And I think that's what dif- differentiates people from those that are dreamers. They, they have big dreams. I think everyone has dreams and, and kind of visions and um, they use their imagination to kind of go, oh, we could do this, we could do that. But the difference between someone that is a dreamer and an entrepreneur is that the entrepreneur goes and does it and is determined to make it work. That's literally it. That's the thing that differentiates people, people that say things and people that do things. Um, So I'm a big believer in just go and do it and stop procrastinating because I think people just procrastinate. They want to get everything right before they do it. And sometimes it's just a case of taking the plunge and seeing where it kind of takes you. Um, So in terms of delegation, and, and this is a really interesting point that everything that we we are as a person and what we do is determined by what we have previously experienced. So the one thing that I'm struggling at the moment is how do I structure my organization's team? And the only model I know is the top-down model, which is what we all kind of are used to because you you know it in school environment. You've got your head teacher, you've got your deputy head, you've got your heads of departments, you've got your teachers. And it's in most corporate environments as well, where you've got senior and then you've got like all the uh, department heads. Our knowledge is limited to what we know and what we've come to know. And it's really fascinating that when you start asking people uh, for opinions, for guidance, you hear a different perspective. So I've heard all sorts of different models and I didn't even realize they existed. Like, I don't need to do a top-down model because it's not working for me. So I'm like, how else can I do it? Um, And I'm reading around. So I've currently got like three books that I'm reading on leadership and how I can structure things differently. Um, So I think it's a case of just going out there, educating yourself of what else is out there that you can implement in your business that will take away that pain point for you. It's that admin at the moment. So in terms of the actual delegation, what is it that you find really difficult? What is that bit that you kind of go I have no idea how to do that I'd say for me specifically there are two uh, types of admin so one is the emails and the phone calls and the second um, which I'm actually working on is marking essays because the kids write like stories or essays that's the hardest bit now uh, that's the thing that I wanted to delegate because that's what I least enjoy so I I took the approach that delegate what you least enjoy because at least try to enjoy your job like I love the teaching I'll never delegate that away it's my it's literally the highlight of um, of my week seeing the kids and uh, getting to teach and it's it's why I actually wanted to become a tutor because of doing the fun math lessons uh, but I didn't realize how much admin and uh, how much uh, other stuff in the background would come with it because when you're doing the voluntary project it's okay you're not getting paid no one's got right really high expectations now if you're charging people money you have to do a good job and you've got to have like progress reports you've got to mark the work you've got to make sure there's an actual syllabus um, because the primary school that we volunteered at they were just happy that some UCL grad turned up to make maths fun and so they they there was no bureaucracy there and that's also the other thing that I want to say when you're an entrepreneur the only bureaucracy is the stuff you put on yourself but when you work for um you know a big city firm 
there is a lot of bureaucracy and you've got to play by their rules. Otherwise you're going to be in trouble. Mm. Um, so I have, I have delegated some stuff out, Sid. I've hired, I hired, uh, I started with four contractors. Um, one elderly lady, she just couldn't get her head around Google classrooms. She was amazing, but she was just so slow that it wasn't making her time worthwhile. Cause like, say if she's charging say 30 pound an hour to teach, and I'm only paying her, say, £3 per essay marked. She's going to be on minimum wage. <laughs> She's not billing me for her time. It's by the number of like stories or essays marked. Um, so she, unfortunately, she was just a little bit slow. Uh, she was, I think, in her 70s. But uh, I've got like the rest of the team. They're really young. Um, two of them are pretty good. And like I'm going to continue to work with them. Unfortunately, one lady, we we disagree on certain things. Um, so I'm, I'm finding like, uh, you know, marking criteria. So if I say this is good, she might say, oh, it's not good. And the feedback will be conflicted for the child. So I, I need to be able to get a contractor who can sort of like take orders, if that makes sense, rather than putting their spin on it, even though it, they might be right. It's just if the, the child receives two conflicting messages, it's yeah. going to cause confusion. Um, so managing the relationship side, that's a little bit tricky, but also the technical aspect. So I, I did have to train up the the other two. The guy who does it, he's amazing. Like I'd want to keep him like forever. And the the girl, she just doesn't have quite enough experience because she's a uni student. She some, sometimes is too busy with work. So then she's not reliable and she needs me to prompt her. Um, and the second thing is because her uh, highest um, English qualification is a GCSE in English and um, there are certain things that she still needs me to point out whereas the the guy he's got like an A-level in English so it's, he's like more experienced. So they're all markers for you at the moment they're marking work? Yes yes so the only stuff that they actually do is literally just marking the work they don't interact with the kids and they don't deal with like admin or emails and stuff. And I think you've highlighted there where what, what the issues are, what you're finding the issues are, what you're finding works for you at the moment and where you're finding the pain points. And I think um, like anything, delegating work is a process. And I found when I first started to hire individuals and contractors, and that was three years ago for my previous business, I struggled with that as well. What you've just described, like you have some people that don't take it seriously. You have some people that just don't do it the way that you want them to do it. You have others that are good, but they're good because it's just complete fluke. There was no kind of process that made them good. Uh, and you, you're like, well, how do I replicate that person to, to everyone else? Um, and I think what you've described there is you've hired people without having the proper interview stages. And it's only this year that I've realized how important the interview stage is. Um, and I make the interview stage deliberately awkward and deliberately difficult. Um, so we filter out a lot of people very early on. And I think now is probably the best opportunity and best time for a lot of people to delegate work because people are looking for online work. People are looking for new work. They realize that actually... Um, with COVID-19 this year, that everything is unpredictable and having um, their eggs in more than one basket is probably a good thing. Being able to do stuff online is probably a lot more secure than office-based um, work. Um, so having a process in place where you are filtering out people 
that actually are not right for you is the way to go because you've hired people that aren't right you need to filter all that out and leave just the last bit of training that you need to do to tweak them into the way that you want them to do so my suggestion there would be that you need to advertise um a lot more widely so you've got a lot more people applying for the post um how many typically do you have applying or is this people that you already know um, so I, so the the girl who's only got the GCSE in English, she cold called me and she wanted to uh, be a tutor. And so I said, look, I'm not actually hiring because I'm just a sole trader, but I'm mm. going to keep you on my book since you've reached out to me. And if there's any work going, like, uh, I'll, I promise I'll, I'll give you a shot. She's good. It's just, I think there are better candidates out there. The guy who I hired, he's absolutely amazing. And it was just by chance. It was from a, a Facebook forum, actually. Um, the other lady, she's very good, but... Um, we disagree on uh, certain criteria and then that's just not going to work. How did you hire her? Was it someone that you knew? To be honest, I went for fairly cheap tutors because the thing is, if a tutor's charging, say, £50 an hour, I'm not going to have the funds to hire them as a contractor. And they're going to say, well, I'm not going to do it for, say, £3 per essay marked. But like for um, the other contractors, I'm actually paying them and above what, what they're charging for one to one tuition. Um, so these guys, because they're quite quick at it, they can make £45 comfortably, £40 an hour. It's a reasonable uh, amount. They're not based in London. So they're actually based uh, in Leeds and Sheffield, I think. And the, the girl's based in Kent, but she's a uni student. So as a uni student, she told me she was either going to earn like £9 an hour in the bar or she could work for me and it'll be like £25, £30 an hour. That's the one thing that I would say to you that the mistake that you're making is you're you're hiring people without actually putting them through an interview process because you feel like you're limited in your candidates because these are people that are reaching out to you, uh, people that you're coming across, and that's the exact same mistake that I made a couple of years ago. So I, I was like, well, where do I find people? Oh, I use my contacts. I ask people. So you know, if someone comes to me, I'm like, oh, well, I don't have another choice. So I have to kind of go with you, right? And you feel like powerless because you feel like there's no other choice. Um, so the one thing that I would suggest is actually put up a proper job description together. And that's difficult. But you've worked with a few people, so you know what you're expecting from them. Put that yeah. together, do a proper advert and do a proper recruitment process. And when you start to implement that in, you'll start to filter out people very quickly. Um, because the people that send in their CVs or their application forms, um, you'll, you'll have a look. and You'll be like, no, 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 no. Oh, these look good. And then you put them through the first stage of interview, whatever that's going to be. So it might be a quick phone call. You have a chat with a few people. You're like, oh, I don't like the way that that person speaks to me. Right. Off the off the list. Um, and then you're kind of filtering that process. And when you get to the end, you get to the last two or three candidates. You've actually got really good candidates. And then you put them through um, a phase where you are getting them to do certain tasks that you would get them to do. So like the issue that you've got with someone not marking fast enough or someone not being able to use technology. You test that, you send them something, you give them a time, you give them a time limit. I want this in at this moment in time and you get them to time how long it's taken them or you give them a certain amount of time to do it in. So you are limiting the issues that you're getting currently with the people you're working with by having those processes in your interview. Just from a practical um, standpoint, because you've done this interview process, is it just you who's doing the filtering or do you have like... Um... Do you have people to assist you with filtering, like through the CVs and things like that? So I've got um, a specialist uh, recruiter that does the filtering for me. So that's what she does. So for one vacancy, we've had 200 applications. 
And there is no way I would be able to filter that. That would drive me insane. And and plus a lot of them, you'll realize they don't even have the experience to be applying. They just apply to whatever's out there. And I think building up that relationship that whoever is going to be doing that filtering knows what you're looking for and knows you well. She knows exactly what I want and what I need from the person. So she she only puts people in front of me that have a chance. And by the time they get to me, they're really good. Or there's something and I'll be like, no, I don't like this. And she'll be like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. And then no, that's a no. But it's very black and white by the time that it gets to that. And she, she'll do it in a way where she'll only put one person at a time because she knows if I love all of them, I'm going to want to hire all of them. <laughs> and I can't do that. <laughs> Previously, I did do it all myself and I've done it myself. So I know the process. So initially, I, I used to do it and it's got to the point where I can't do it anymore. Um, and when I did it, it was, you have to be disciplined. You have to go, right, this is a criteria. Um, and, and my cr- criteria was that they had to have uh, a, a university degree in the subjects of their specialism. And then you, and then with the current contractor that you've got, who doesn't have a, a, a level or a, a higher degree in that, um, that would be a no-no. So you, you take that out. So they'd have experience online, um, which doesn't have to be like, huge amounts of experience just being able to use zoom is enough for me because i can train them up um so having that criteria where initially you kind of go yes no yes no yes no yes no very quickly (laughs) and narrow it down the interview process itself evolves over time you won't nail it the first time but you've got to start somewhere right so start with getting your description out there start with getting an advert out there facebook jobs is quite good i i added 10 pounds behind the um behind the job advert and the very first vacancy I had um, 102 applications for. That was purely from wow. Facebook. It works. People are looking at the moment. You just need to make sure that your title grabs their attention. So for me, it was quite easy. Online teaching, <laughs> remotely from home, right? Um, so you could do an online um, job for those looking to work in education or have an interest in English or interest in essay writing. Start with an advert, then try and figure out looking at the CVs, what is it that you want to be um, looking at next? Do you want to do a quick chat with them? Because you want to be able to get along with them, right? If yeah, you call yeah. someone and they're not really that chatty and you think, mm, I don't see myself getting along with that person, then that's a no. So you need to create a filtration process. Um, and then what starts to happen, don't worry so much about the pay because what you'll start to find is people will like you you've got a passion for what you do and it comes across you're a likable person and I think some people will opt to work with you because they like you and what you're doing and then they see the potential of it growing because you'll be like oh yeah in the future I could offer you this much and this and this um so build that relationship up with people I'm assuming it's not going to be a full-time work so it'll be a side thing for them um, and then and then pay won't be so much of an issue if they're already working on something else. If if it's the sole thing you're asking them to do, then yes, the pay has to be worth for them to leave their other job. But I think if you're a- asking it for it to be a side thing, they could be doing it for experience. They could be doing it as something to put on their CV. If they're going to go into education later, they could be doing it to supplement their income. Find what their reason is for coming to you yeah. and also be picky if they're just doing it purely for the money, then you might kind of go, hmm, I don't think that's going to be a right fit. You need to know what type of person it is that you want in your business. 
So I came across this um, really lovely, it was actually one of my team members that shared it into the team, into the group. And he said that there's three types of workers. I'm just going to see if I can remember at the top of my head what they are. So there's the type of worker who lives for Friday. They come in on a Monday, they hate work. Uh, they're ready to finish as soon as they possibly can. They bring in cookies on a Friday because they're so glad it's the weekend. And you've got that type of worker, right? I can't remember what they call that type of worker, but the, 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 the one that lives for Fridays. Then you have the type of worker that is very competitive, that is doing it for the title. They will compete with their other workers. They will do whatever it takes to reach the top. And you get that in a lot of corporate environments, where people are very competitive with each other. And then you've got the third type of worker who is a mission worker. They see, they see a cause and they see a mission and they want to help support and they get the satisfaction from completing those tasks. Now, I know what type of person I want in my business. Yeah. So when I go interviewing, I look for that in how they're talking and what they say, in the types of questions that I ask. I get that out of them. And I quickly know whether they're right for me or they're not. And I don't settle for anything less. And mm. if that means I don't hire anyone, even after the 200 applications, I don't hire anyone after the 200 applications. You keep looking. And I think you have to be very disciplined in this is what I want. And I won't go any less than that. You've got workers at the moment. So it's not like you're, you need anyone right now. So start looking now because the process takes a while. And then when you have that person, start to give them a bit more work and lessen the work of your other workers until like you have a feeling for them. And then give them like a probation period where you kind of go, right, I'm going to give you this project um, and it's going to be two weeks and I want to see how you kind of do. And then if that works, then I'm going to extend it and then you'll have more work. Because your experience, you're aware of these things. Like I didn't even think about a probation period. Like even though when I was hired, I was put on probation for like two months. It just never crossed my mind because... Um, this is like the, uh, it was only last term that I hired contractors because the year before I was literally doing everything myself. But um, when you're scaling up, it's almost impossible to literally do everything yourself. So that's why I had to hire the people. Um, and yeah, it's funny you should mention about like the type of workers because I used to be worker too, like down to a T. But then I realized it's not really just about the competition and titles and things like that. It's there's a bigger cause. And that's what I meant about like being a free man and doing mm. something you really enjoy. So I, I feel I've shifted from two to three, but that's only um, that's only in more recent years. And I think it comes with maturity as well, because a lot of young people, it's drilled into them that competition is like essential. And I think coming from a grammar school, the careers advisor never said, oh, teaching's a really fulfilling job or I'll go into like care work because that's uh, you're contributing to society. It was always like, oh, these jobs pay the most money. You should go for one of these. And that's not necessarily the right thing to be drilling into teenagers because they're very impressionable. So they're likely to take that advice on board. I, I also went to a, a grammar school and it was a given that everyone would go on to uni. Like there was no alternative. You, you weren't going to do apprenticeship. You weren't going to go and work. Uh, you were going to go to uni. Like it was just given. And there weren't any opportunities for people to explore any other options. And I think it is uh, quite sad that not everyone wants to go to uni or is set up for that. They, they have other ways of doing well. Like there was nothing about entrepreneurialism. There was nothing about apprenticeships. There was nothing about other schemes where you can learn and train on the job. There was none of that. 
and it was expected that you'd go to Redbrook Uni and that would be it. You'd become a professional in your field. And I think even the uni, because I did physics and maths at uni, and everyone else went on to jobs that were expected of them, which was banker, um, investment. Um, I've, I've got colleagues and um, my friends that work in Deloitte and went on to do PhDs and work in cancer research and all of that kind of stuff. There wasn't an alternative. I'm the only one. It's weird. I was at one of their weddings a couple of years ago and I look at them and I, and I, and I know that they've got the financial security. They're all managers and team leaders in their fields now. And they look at me and they're like, oh, you work for yourself. You've got, you're so lucky. So they admire me and I kind of admire them that they have got the uh, patience to be able to work for someone. And they kind of look at me that and they go, you've got the patience, like you've got the confidence to take a risk and uh, do it yourself. And, and it's so weird that we always admire what we don't have or admire the other. And we fail to recognize our own skills and our own talents and I think what you've done there, where you've gone from a career where you had the financial security, that you were in an environment where you could have, if you carried on working for 10 years, you'd be sorted for the rest of your retirement. You've gone from that and you've taken a risk um, to do something that you love. And I think the fundamental thing there, it comes down to values. And when you're hiring people, you need to have people that share your values. It's not just a case of going, what are your values? You have to see them demonstrated. And I think that's where the difficulty is, being able to assess a person in the 15 or 20 minutes that you're speaking to them. Like, what are their values? Now, I could probably assess your values because I've spoken to so many people that I probably know that you you like the ability to um, to work for yourself. You don't like being told what to do. Um, and the fact that you've said that you don't want to have a team that works under you uh, suggests that you like minimal admin and management of other people because you've probably experienced management of other people in your corporate role and you don't like that Um, especially when they disagree with you (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, so there's certain things I can pick up in the conversations that, that that you have with people and that comes from experience when you speak to a lot of people so I would say get an adder out there and then speak to as many people that kind of go oh I don't know about that person speak to them because when you speak to people you will start to develop a sense of yeah that could work and you're not always going to get it right you'll hire people and then you'll be like no they don't work the important thing is and I think this is where people fail in that when they make a mistake they don't learn from it yes you've worked with four people four contractors and you've realized something right jot that down make that a learning bit how are you then going to take that learning opportunity and implement it so in future you don't make that same mistake again so Mm. I interviewed someone on Friday and that was her third stage interview her second stage was the day before and I emailed her quite late at night. I'd already decided that she was going to come for the third stage, but I forgot to email her on time. So I emailed her quite late. I think it was probably 10 p.m. She didn't pick it up till, until the next day. And her, her third stage interview was that afternoon. And she goes, um, yeah, I'm for, up for it. Sorry, I've just seen the email and I'll get everything sorted if you still want me to do it. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Now she came and I thought she nailed the interview. In the time scale that I get, get, gave her, she nailed it. And I had a chat with her after and she goes, oh, if I had more time, I would have got some props. I would have done this. And I was like, no, it was fine. You did it. 
because I know now that if I were to drop something on her last minute, she'd be able to cope. Mm. And that's what I need. She'd be able to cover people. That's fine. Brilliant. I've got her sorted. So you need to put stuff in place in your interview and the actual way that you do it. If you're telling someone to email you and you're telling them to put something in the head, someone told me this where they interview a lot of people um, and the actual task of submitting the application is a test in itself. So they tell people when you email in the subject heading, put this um, or whatever it is like interview for or application for those people that don't, they don't even open the email that harsh black and white, because if someone has no attention to detail, they're not going to be able to realize what you're telling them later on down the line. They're going to miss that. And then, um, like you've said that in some cases is an issue where you're trying to delegate and you're trying to tell them how to do something, but they're not following the instructions because they don't have that care for detail. So you limit those by the processes you put in into your interview stage. There's some really um, good practical tips there, Sid. And I've obviously got like a lot to to digest because uh, I'm still new to like this whole interview process, whereas you've got the experience. So I think you, I think you can learn from other people's experience, but the yeah. best teaching is to do it yourself and to make those mistakes. And then uh, it's sort of like a lesson not learned in blood is a lesson not learned. So sometimes you have to have that pain of uh, almost suffering uh, because it's going to be more memorable. Like I know you, you reiterate to me of you have to filter this, make notes on that, try to test them within the 15 minutes. I'm sure I'm going to forget something at some point. And it's uh, and, but then if I make the error in uh, the actual interview myself, then I'll remember it more for next time rather than you saying, oh, these are the points yeah. that no yeah that is also a learning curve for your um contractors as well that sometimes you can tell them everything but they need to learn by making mistakes Mm -hmm. so sometimes i see someone about to make a mistake but i allow it and then i tell them after i'm like no you're gonna do it again now (laughs) because they gotta sometimes they have to make the mistake to be able to learn from it and if you stop them beforehand, then um, it's not going to be, like you say, as memorable. And then they'll end up making the same mistake again. And then you might not catch it the second time. Um, so you've got to allow that process to sometimes happen as painful as it is. And the longer it's going to take to correct it. So what is it that makes you not want to grow your team? I, I think you touched on it perfectly. It's the managing people. Like I am a friendly person and I am quite personable and I do get on with most people genuinely. It's just, I don't want to manage people. Like I want to be, I keep going back to this about being a free man. Like when you work for yourself, um, if you don't have employees. So the reason why I have contractors is um, there's no there's no commitment. And it's also to do with the pension reason as, as well, because it's cheaper than hiring an employee because you've got to think about sick pay, uh, maternity leave, pension, all of that stuff. Uh, so the contractor thing works for me because it is like an, an, an administrative task, which can effectively be b- done by anyone who's trained. So um, the contractors, they're not obliged to stay. They, the mm-hmm. contracts are like termly. So there's three terms in a year and they can choose whether they want to stay or not. Um, so one contractor will unfortunately be leaving. So I'm, I was already one down because the elderly lady uh, wasn't able to cope with the work. So I took on a class myself. Each piece of work, it's only about three hours per week. And if you think about it, 10 weeks per term, if I spend more than 30 hours on the interview process, which hopefully it won't come to that, um, I might as well have done the work myself because uh, firstly, I wouldn't have to pay. And secondly, it's I'm only trying to save 30 hours a term anyway. In aggregate, it's it's good, but on the individual level, like per contractor, 
it's almost not worth my time doing a proper interview process. And I know it sounds bad, um, but that's you, you have to uh, weigh up the costs and the benefits of it. So obviously the benefits is saving time over the term. The cost is it's a lot of upfront um, time now um, and it's, it's a bit painful and I don't particularly like dealing with people, to be honest. And outsource that process. So yeah. it's faster for you to do it. So get someone else to do the hiring process for you and and put that put the stages in place for you and then you are just interviewing the final stage candidates so they put in front of you these other people and then you just do the final stage but you've got four people are they doing four different classes or could you have the same person doing everything so i initially had four people uh, and one was doing two classes but now i'm down to, i'll be down in january to just two people and they will be doing one class each so i've got three classes to mark myself which which is easily manageable it's just that if they go um five classes is not quite manageable because i'd be doing just too much too much marking yeah um so the thing is i've i have actually offered them more work but because one's they're, they're actually both uni students so one guy's doing an mba and the girl's doing a bsc so they've got work commitments in terms of studies so mm. I, I would actually i'm happy with both of them like if they wanted more work it would save me a lot of time um but that's why I have to look elsewhere. And just in case one of them falls ill or something, it's always better to have, um, it's better to be uh, like over capacity. I'd, I'd rather pay a bit extra than yeah. to be like uh, under the strain because it's not it's not worth it on your own health and your uh, stress levels. Like I genuinely just rather pay a little bit extra to, for, for that security. I agree with you there. In the long term, if you get that interview process nailed, it will help you so much because it will be less time then later on, once you've hired them, trying to train them, trying to correct their errors, trying to tell them how to do things, and then kind of realizing they're not doing it the way that you want them to, um, it'll save you a headache later. I have to agree, because I think yeah. the, the wrong hire is probably going to cost more time and stress exactly. than getting, uh, than, exactly. you know, yeah. So when you were asking about delegation, you do delegate already. I do delegate, but then I have to think of, um, so that's just on the essay marking side. Like I haven't even began to explore on like answering emails and taking phone calls. At the moment, it's it's okay because I, I, I don't like have that much volume, but there will be a point where um, I'm not going to be able to individually answer every single email. So that's when you might want to consider like a VA or a receptionist mm. or, you know, someone someone to just handle emails and social media perhaps. Why don't you look at one person that can do all of that? The essay marking and the admin side. That's that's actually a very good idea. Uh, and that would probably be the most cost effective and also the best in terms of like business strategy because, yeah. um, you know, th they, they could be doing two things. They will un understand your business a lot better. Mm. Um, and mm. then your the essay marking will be a lot more relevant because if they mess it up, then they'll have to deal with the emails that come through. As well. <laughs> so it'll be, yes. it'll, it works hand in hand. So I think sometimes, and if you've got that interview process in place, you can put those questions in quite early on. So you are filtering the people that have the skills in both areas and can commit a bit more in time um, and it'll ease off. And then it'll also mean you're not managing huge amounts of people as well, because there's one main person in your business that's dealing with the majority of it hmm. can i ask you one question about like the interview process yeah go on what um what would you say are the top three uh like personal traits or factors that you look for when you when you hire a person one is that their personality because you can train them on a lot of other things you can train them in skills but their attitude and personality is something you can't 
train someone in. That's one thing. I then look for the passion for my particular business. What is it that may, brings them to me? Um, and, and then the third thing is, are they committed long-term? I don't want to be investing time and effort in someone that in two months time isn't going to stick with me. So it's that long-term commitment. Who is going to stay with me? Can I see them staying with me? Or are they a bit kind of here and there and they don't know where they're heading? Um, so those are the key, three key things. And then everything I design is built on establishing whether those three key bits are there. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the personality thing because I think technical stuff can can be trained. Um, but yeah, like you said, if they don't don't like if their personality just doesn't fit, it's just going to be awkward from like the, the get go. That's really helpful, Sid. Yeah. And what Colm Hay was saying about um, you can get on with like minded people, but you can only work with like valued. Mm. Right? So the values need to be there and the values come through the personality. They come through their work ethic. They come through their dedication. So you will see that as well. And I think that's a really good kind of um, connection of how your company connects, because you've got to have the values there. Definitely agree, that's it. Thank you so much. I know you've got to go in a short while, so I'm going to let you escape. Um, But hopefully that's been interesting for people listening. I feel like the scales tipped a bit and I was doing more talking here. (laughs) I know, but I think it's very useful. I think for someone in my position, Hmm. uh, that's actually very valuable, especially like how you mentioned the interview filtering process and like what core values. I I think that's actually a a lot of value. It's probably more value. They probably got more value from listening to you there than me rambling on about like uh, how how much uh, I hate 70 hour work weeks. But funnily enough, like as an entrepreneur, there, there will be times when you have to put in 70 hour work week so I, I I know your friends from Deloitte might envy you but they you probably work equally as hard as as them in their busy season when you have your own busy season the idea of entrepreneur people think about oh you got a private jet or oh you're always on holiday on a laptop it's really not like that at all especially in the first couple of years I'd say the first couple of decades right <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it won't take that long but the, the the idea is eventually you'll get to be what I call a free man but there's always going to be that upfront cost, uh, regardless if you're doing like a nine to five job or being an entrepreneur. It's the starting off is is the hardest. But once you've got that like snowball rolling, I think it does become easier over time. Like I, I certainly work less now than I did uh, in my first five or six months, like five or six months. I spent so much time like just advertising, literally handing out leaflets in the, in the rain, in the cold. Um, now it's like you can run a Facebook ad. I didn't know what a Facebook ad was uh, when I first started. So it's it's that's part of the learning curve, though. And I think um, if you can enjoy the, the process and you can enjoy the journey, you, you will enjoy being an entrepreneur. It's not just about, you know, if, if you want a private jet, that's great. And I don't think many people will achieve it. But a lot of people do go into entrepreneurship thinking that they, they might get it. Um, but I think you have to love the process. Otherwise, you can you won't even be getting a car if you're going to have that attitude like, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm going to make a million in my first year. That's that's just the wrong attitude. And I see that sort of on Instagram with like these Forex traders and these fake entrepreneur gurus. And it just it really winds me up. It's not a journey for the lighthearted, right? It's a, it's a journey where you have to be committed. Um, and this is why a lot of businesses fail in the first couple of years. Absolutely agree there. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining me today and, and, and kind of talking about some of the challenges that you have as a, as a solo entrepreneur. I think it's going to be an exciting year for you next year if you start to recruit new contractors in 
and and seeing your business grow because then you can focus on the teaching cheers for having me Sid I've re- really enjoyed talking to you and I hope the the audience uh, took some value in this chat hope you guys enjoyed listening to our conversation and took lots of value from it for your business now if you did please remember to do me a huge favor and rate and review on your podcast app and if you don't want to miss another episode please remember to subscribe now if you missed anything or you want to find out what's coming up next remember to go to ukeducators.com forward slash podcast where there's lots of information about the guests upcoming and those that we've already had I'm Sid, you've been listening into the UK Educators Community Podcast and I'll see you next Sunday when we release a new episode.